0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. If this is your first time tuning in, first of all, welcome aboard. I'm a lawyer and political columnist for the Conservative Institute. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up for that by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com. For a taste of what I wrote this week... Uh, I had two articles out this week as well as the newsletter. The first column covered why the GOP should keep up the pressure on the impeachment front and how it's a political game and they need to make sure to keep that pressure up. The second thing I covered was why a secret ballot on impeachment in the Senate would be a bad thing to do. It would just wreck trust and confidence overall in the institution for the Senate and Congress and just it's a bad suggestions being thrown about on the impeachment front. And then finally In the newsletter, I gave out my predictions for what I think is going to happen on all things related to impeachment. So if you're interested in impeachment this week, it was a full court press on that front. We're covering all those things. And if any of that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and I'll send it to your email inbox if you go to thebellwayoutsiders.com. It's just the easiest way to get out my columns analysis to you. That list isn't for sale, so you don't have to worry about getting any more spam. It's just what you see here. Before jumping into the show, I'd like to mention this podcast is powered by Podcast One, who inserts their ads during the breaks. If you'd like to advertise on this podcast, feel free to reach out to me. Contact information for that, as well as sign-up links for everything I've mentioned so far can be found in the show notes. If you're listening on your smartphone, just hit the episode icon and it'll pull up all that information for you right now. Finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Those five-star reviews go a long way towards helping me grow and build an audience, and it's the best way for you to pitch in and help out to build that and help other people like you find us here. And I like hearing from the feedback. It helps implement some good changes here, so make sure to bring in that feedback. So with all the preliminaries out of the way, we're going to jump into the show. This week I have a couple of quick hits. One on a lawyer who blocks me on Twitter this week, a very famous one. Uh, second quick hit on the Kaepernick uh, thing, his tryout that he had going this week. And then the meat of the show will be covering the a Twitter thread that I wrote this week that got a lot of feedback from both you in the audience as well as some. Um, some well-known names in the media and it just it covered impeachment, and so I'm gonna talk about that and then also talk about the political options that Nancy Pelosi has for her walking forward and how that'll kind of guide all the political fundamentals as we're working forward. The second thing I'm gonna cover is Pete Buttigieg, who we he's having his moment right now since he's led in two polls in Iowa, and If you look at that and you look at how other candidates in the Democratic Party have fallen so far, people like Elizabeth Warren, who struggled with black voters and others, you see where they had struggles, the struggles that Pete Buttigieg is going to have moving forward are far more fatal to his campaign and matter a lot more. And then we're going to wrap things up with a quick update on Iran and Hong Kong, who are both have massive protests going on, and I just want to touch on that before leaving and covering everything else. So that's what's on the docket for today's show. So we're going to cover that and go through the breaks and get you out and about today. So the first thing I want to cover here real quick is the Kaepernick tryout that he had in Atlanta. This was a really really bizarre thing for the nfl to do it, it was bizarre on multiple fronts it's bizarre because one in most practices in the nfl if you follow the nfl and you just follow things week to week they have these types of practices for players and everything usually on tuesday so that they can onboard them for the upcoming week if they're going to do in the game there's typically no practices held on a saturday and it's just it's weird timing because it's at week 11 in the nfl 16 17 weeks season here if you include the 17, if you include the bye week. And they're having this random workout where they contacted him just last minute to hold it in week 11, where there's only a few weeks left in the season. And that's, for for the quarterback position, that's going to be just about impossible for anyone to just step in and learn immediately. And then you have Kaepernick also switching locations and then all the different requests that the two sides had. And it's just this entire thing is a sham. There, There's just absolutely nothing else to make of it other than it was just a sham going forward. It was a sham by the NFL to set it up. The entire thing where it was all videotaped was a sham and all the reactions afterwards. It's just all bizarre and sham. There's just nothing real here. The NFL's entire shtick here was to pretend like they gave him a fair shot there's nothing fair about this if you're doing it in week 11. If you wanted to get Kaepernick on a team, you would have held this in the summer when they were hiring all of these others, all these other free agents. It doesn't make any sense to do this in week 11. Sure, you can say that all the teams are there and everything else, but this looks far more like the NFL set up something and just drug everybody there and got them to uh, to show up. So not a lot of this makes sense, and my only conclusion is the same one I've had about the NFL for a while now, is that Roger Goodell should just be fired at this point. He's the worst commissioner the league has seen in forever. I don't expect him to be fired because he's liked by all the owners in the league. But as far as the league disciplinary stuff and just dealing with players and the image of the league, he is the worst thing that's happened to the league in a long time, and he's ruining the sport. He's ruining a sport that just prints money. The NFL should not be this difficult to figure it out. And you don't see this type of stuff, with the exception of the blip in the NBA where you had the China thing, you don't see this type of stuff in other leagues where the league commissioner screws up on this regular of a basis. So on that quick hit, I'll go out on that. It's just, I don't really care where you fall on Kaepernick. Roger Goodell should be fired for everything that's gone on. The second thing I want to hit real quick is that everyone's favorite lawyer in the media, the guy who was on CNN around 200 times, I think is what they say, and was everywhere else, was even walking around in Iowa pretending like he was a thing and was going to run for president, Michael Avenatti. I learned this week that he had blocked me on Twitter, and that is awesome. Just couldn't be happier. I don't even know what I did. It was probably mocking him. He deserved it. But in any event, it doesn't really matter what I think, because Michael Avenatti was the subject of a jeopardy clue question this week and the answer to that question was also amazing, and listening to the contestants react to that question was also amazing. It was so amazing that I pulled the clip to let you hear it, hear it for yourself. So here's the three Jeopardy contestants. Now, remember, this week they're on their Tournament of Champions. So these are the very best of the very best who play Jeopardy. These are people who've won multiple rounds and no trivia on everything. And this is what they know about Michael Avenatti Lawyers 800. This lawyer's star rose while repping Stormy Daniels, but fell after he was accused of trying to extort millions from Nike in 2019. His name, quickly forgotten, obviously, Michael Avenatti. Back to you, Emma. And that's all they knew. Absolutely nothing. He's absolutely forgotten by the best trivia players in the world. So all that talk about from CNN and all these media organizations who built Avenatti to be up this great foil for Donald Trump, all these people who had him on their shows and all the parties that he attended, with you know all these big newspapers, New York Times, just, just everybody on down, Democrats adored him, and now he's nothing, forgotten just like that. In fact, he's facing jail time now. He's facing the prospect of going to jail for trying to extort Nike. So that's the life of Michael Avenatti, the guy who was pumped up to be a big opponent of Donald Trump and just a big person in politics overall, and now he's a forgotten question. He's, a, he's evidently a hard question on Jeopardy, if you pull around. And that's how, what's going to happen to most of this presidential field, apart from Michael Avenatti. they are going to be hard Jeopardy questions that nobody's going to remember in the end. It seems like a big deal now, but nobody's going to remember most of this in the end. So those are those, my two quick hits for the week. I do feel a little petty hitting on Avinani like that, but he blocked me, and that came out the same week. So I'm feeling pretty good about that this week. So that brings me to the first main section, and where the media of the show starts this week, the impeachment front. And this week we've probably got a lot of new listeners because there was, I wrote a viral thread that got retweeted by National Review writer Luke Thompson, uh, Rich Lowry, Molly Hemingway, uh, Fox News. So it was a real cool moment for me to see all of them validate some of the thoughts that I've had here on impeachment. And if you're a long-time listener or reader of my work, you would recognize most of this because the broad outlines of what I wrote there on Twitter are what I've talked about here, which is that the polls, and more specifically, the poll trackers at places like 538, are showing a softening support. At most, the best case that you can make for impeachment is that the polls have been static with a slight downward trend. And so... What that means is that they're not where they were at the, they're they're basically losing steam. All the media push for impeachment, all these hearings so far, I think we're still waiting for a few polls to come out post-hearings, but all, all the stuff that's come out in the media that are supposedly bombshell after bombshell, everything that's coming out is not affecting the polls whatsoever. And the key here is the Monmouth poll, which I've pointed out numerous times, which shows that... 59% of people when polled about this process would prefer an election to to take care of Donald Trump's conduct as opposed to impeachment. And even the 34% who say they want impeachment now, they want remove, they want impeachment in the house and removal in the Senate even those people who want that will tell you when the when mammoth broke that down even further they will tell you that an election should probably be the main focus for democrats moving forward so when you really start breaking this down the support for an actual impeachment shrinks the more you break this down and it's just, it's not what's, what we're seeing here with the polls is that people are being forced into a dual option where it's either you want impeachment or you don't want impeachment. But the moment you give people a third option, where either it's an election or really anything else that they're offered in some of these polls, they immediately pick that. They're not wanting to go down the impeachment uh, path. And all of these Democrats who are sticking their neck out saying, seeing these polls that makes them think that there's probably support for impeachment, that's not really there. It's very soft support. And the longer Democrats sit out here, the worse it's going to get for them. They're effectively on a running clock. Luke Thompson used this. On the editor's podcast, he mentioned that when he mentioned my thread, that Democrats are on a running clock. They don't have the luxury of sitting around and figuring out what they're going to do over time. They have to make a choice on the impeachment front, and they have to make it soon. They're constrained by two things. One, the fact that these polls are losing some steam, and also they're constrained by the presidential primaries that are coming up. And both of those things are going to make people think more about an election and an waiting for the results of that, instead of moving into a full impeachment. So that's going to take the steam out of all all these hearings with Adam Schiff. Now, I think that's going to affect some of Pelosi's decisions moving forward, but that was the main gist of the thread. And I even got some kickback from Lonnie Davis. Yes, that Lonnie Davis, the Clinton lawyer who helped him out during his impeachment. He he would like you all to know that that I'm very wrong on these impeachment polls, and Democrats have a good shot at impeachment moving forward. He sees the polls very differently. I don't know what he's looking at, but he wants you all to know that I'm very wrong. And if he thinks that, that probably means I'm very right. So that's all I think about that when it comes to Lonnie Davis. Craziest thing. I'm just a lawyer in Tennessee, and now I'm tweeting and arguing with Lanny Davis on Twitter. The world's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And the kicker with that thread, and one of the main reasons that I ended up writing it, was there was this viral tweet that people were passing around on the left and among journalists, and it was this video of people on a plane flight. I think it was Delta. Delta. And they were all watching news. This person was panning their phone around, or the people sitting around him or her. And everybody around them was watching CNN and the impeachment hearings. And the the caption of the video was just said that Republicans should be scared because this is what's happening on a plane. And that's just the height of the Twitter bubble, where people are in their own bubbles staring into the depths of that bubble and not coming up for air, that plane represented at most ten people, six to ten people sitting around you watching the same thing. I've been on flights where everybody, flights where everybody was watching ESPN, but if you moved up three or four rows, everybody was watching a movie. A lot of people just watch the same thing that other people are watching around them. That's nothing. Fancy at all. And we saw the TV ratings came out for day one. And on day one, 13 million people were watching. And the leaders in that were not CNN. Fox News and ABC News were the two leaders on the TV front. 13 million people watched this thing, but Fox News was still the leader. That should tell you a little bit something. And popping that CNN bubble about a plane. And so this is not reality it's not data supported this is pure wish casting by a certain segment of the media elite these are all going to be mostly either basically your liberals who are all out here trying to say oh republicans and trump are in danger and these impeachment hearings are having an impact and no they're not these impeachment hearings are well under the impact of James Comey's hearings before Congress. I think his received 17, 19 million people who viewed it, and we're only at 13 here. And these impeachment hearings barely, barely edged out the Robert Mueller hearings and that testimony. And if you go back and you look at all the numbers, what you see in these polls about impeachment is that none of those had any impact whatsoever on people's opinions of impeachment. So the idea that Democrats are going to get some kind of boost from these hearings, and they might, I mean, that's not without outside the realm of, out of question with this, but based on past experience and what we've seen so far, Adam Schiff is a bad, bad messenger, and he's not going to be able to push the narrative that he wants in the media. And a lot of this is just wish casting by Democrats who want to believe that there's something here, but data and these polls are pointing the opposite way. So that brings me to Nancy Pelosi's options here. And she's got a few. If you sort of game this out, you can look and see what all the options are for her and what's going to happen on the impeachment front moving forward. And there's a few ways it'll play out. I laid out some of my predictions in the newsletter this week, so make sure to go back and read that. I'll link it in the show notes. But the first way that this can play out is the one that everybody believes. It's the conventional wisdom. It's that the House passes articles of impeachment and impeaches Donald Trump, and then the Senate turns around and acquits Donald Trump, and so everything effectively just goes along party line votes. And this is the conventional wisdom in D.C. It's that Democrats have the votes to vote for articles of impeachment. They will do so on a pure party line vote. And then Republicans will turn around and acquit Donald Trump on a pure party line vote. Just power politics all the way through. Now, I think if you looked at betting markets and you just look at what people think, this is probably what everyone in Washington, D.C. thinks is going to happen I tend to push back on this just because there's nothing that I've seen so far, especially from Nancy Pelosi, that makes me to think that she has the votes moving forward to get an impeachment with her current members. The moderate faction of the party hasn't acted in any way like they want an impeachment. So I tend to think that you're not going to see anytime soon. If you're going to see it, it's got to happen before Thanksgiving. If, that, if conventional wisdom is true, it's got to happen before Thanksgiving. The longer it's going to get pushes out, the less people are going to pay attention and the less these polls are going to show any push for impeachment. And they've got to get it in before Thanksgiving, to have any kind of shot of getting the Senate trial put in the month of December, because the moment this thing gets pushed into January and butting up against the February Iowa caucuses for some of these Senate Democrats they 're going to start getting antsy too so this this the odds of an impeachment it has to happen soon in order to allow people who are running for president to get back out in the field. It has to happen soon, or it's not. It's going to get pushed out well beyond the caucuses. So it's it's going to be one of those two. Either it happens early and now, or it's. I just don't think it's going to happen at all. So the second thing that happens here is that instead of passing the articles, the House doesn't pass articles of impeachment. And if they don't do that, then the Senate doesn't matter at all, really. So if the House isn't going to pass articles of impeachment, that means you one or two things. It means Nancy Pelosi is going to shelve the vote. It means there was a failed vote. Or they're trying to delay the idea of a vote happening at all. So the first thing I want to talk about is... Delaying the vote. So, if Pelosi basically tries to string out this impeachment inquiry for as long as she can, that really means she doesn't have the votes in order to get anything through, and it means she's instead trying to protect her members. This is the Democrats' way of having their cake and eating it too, where they try to keep investigating and saying they're focused on impeachment while never taking an actual vote. So in avoiding this, it keeps impeachment in the news as a constant news story. The journalists who are on this beat will report every quote-unquote bombshell that they come across, and it's just basically a long, slow-drip opposition research hit for Trump moving into 2020, and politically that would probably hurt him because he's just under impeachment investigation for the entirety of the 2020 year. Now, I think eventually the polls would move in Trump's favor, and the weird thing that would happen here is that if she does delay the vote, you get into this weird situation where Trump probably will start tweeting and demanding that Democrats take a vote on impeachment in order to clear this mess and to let him to be free, and he'll have a point on that front. He will absolutely have a point that dragging the impeachment inquiry as Democrats are calling it, dragging it out forever impacts his capacity to govern the federal government and to run for re-election. So he can start demanding that they either, that they put up or shut up. And if they refuse to take a vote, he can call everything that they're doing a sham. So that's the first thing you could see here, this first weird angle that if the House doesn't pass articles of impeachment, you could see Donald Trump later on calling their bluff and demanding a vote Anyway, the second way that this could happen is that there is um, the second way it could happen is that you know after all the polls and everything start coming through, if Pelosi gets into this tight spot where she can't get in enough Democrats to vote in the House, um, she could also call off the process altogether. And the way she could do this and try to do like a no harm, no foul is to say that she's calling off the inquiry in order to allow Democrats to focus on the 2020 election and to broaden up the scope. Because there's more at play here than just impeachment. Democrats also want to focus on health care and all these other things. And besides the point, she could argue, Republicans have already indicated in the Senate they're going to reject this and acquit Trump no matter what evidence the House comes up with. So the best thing to do is just to be to call this off to protect her members and to move into the 2020 election free and clear so that they don't have to do, and they don't have anything to do with impeachment. Now, politically, this would be a pretty, this would be using a pretty weak hand where she doesn't have the capacity to get through an impeachment and basically trying to turn this into flowers, turn it into roses after having absolutely nothing and you can guarantee that the media will follow law, right along with her and there'll be a fight over whether or not the senate would have done this and Trump would of course start tweeting and blasting them but if that happens if the house basically if the house doesn't have a vote on articles of impeachment you can pretty well guarantee that the reason that they're not having one is that Pelosi doesn't have the votes and she doesn't want to hold a vote without knowing what's going to happen which is why the least likely scenario here is that Democrats hold a vote and it fails the odds of that happening are basically 0 because Pelosi's not going to take anything out of the floor unless she already knows the results of what's going to happen so that's kind of the her options she's got to figure out what she can do with what she has moving forward Right now, they're just trying to bank on one of these witnesses saying something so outlandish that it spins full polls in their favor. But we know that they've been interviewing a lot of these witnesses beforehand and then leaking a lot of this stuff to the press as sort of a trial balloon to see if any of this stuff stuck to Trump. And so far, none of that's been successful from what we can tell. So that's the one part of her pressure, I think, is trying to deal with whether or not she has the votes in the House. The other part, which I alluded to already, are Senate Democrats, and specifically the six Democrats who are running for uh, the presidency in the Democratic primaries. They have the Iowa caucuses coming up in February, and a Senate trial, if it were to be held, we'll assume that conventional wisdom is right in that a Senate trial is held, and McConnell is putting all this together. The Clinton impeachment trial lasted a month. They're already alluding to the fact that they could go at least six weeks, and if McConnell wanted to, he could go abs- He could go longer. There's no procedure on how long this Senate trial has to last. So all these senators who are needing to be out in Iowa and in New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina campaigning away and getting ready for their primaries, McConnell could have basically locked them in Congress in D.C. without the capacity to run for office basically, in, in the senator's eyes, give the field to people like Buttigieg and Joe Biden, and they're not going to want that. So they may also pressure Nancy Pelosi to back down from an impeachment vote because they don't want to deal with the fact that they could be locked out, and that if Pelosi is doing that, she's effectively taking sides in the primaries by helping out Buttigieg or Joe Biden or anybody else who's not a senator. So there's a lot of political things at play here that could affect how each one of these sides plays out and what they're doing. Pelosi is going to face pressure both from the Senate Democrats and from her own House caucus. The House is obviously the larger and more loud part here because they are the ones who have their necks out of the line and have to hold tight and they have to hold the, the line on whether or not this vote even happens. So, as I said, Democrats are on a running clock. Impeachment has to happen by Thanksgiving. And that rumored deadline is not looking great. Everybody's already getting to say, oh, this could go into the next year, you know. So if all that starts happening, it means they're trying to move into the delay front. I think that's the most likely thing that'll happen. I think Pelosi will not hold a vote for as long as she can. And we'll delay this and both just to avoid all the pressure and allow the investigation to continue into a slow drip. So then it'll come down to how hard and when Donald Trump decides to challenge that delay. So that's kind of the various avenues that we have here. Those are the options that Nancy Pelosi has moving forward. There are not many good options, as you can tell. Pelosi's playing a very weak. Hand, and, in my opinion, if you look at her hand and what she's dealing with now, it reminds me a lot of John Boehner and dealing with Republicans who wanted to shut down the government in two thousand and fourteen over Obamacare. That was bad politics too, and none of it was ever going to play in the favor of republicans and John Boehner knew that, but the hard right wing of the party wanted to happen. People like Ted Cruz absolutely wanted that to happen, and were willing to push for it, and push for it, and push for it, and ultimately it hurt the party. It didn't hurt them in the elections, thankfully, but it did hurt the party and their political standing. They had to rebuild back up in time for the elections. Pelosi faces similar problems here, where this is going to cost her party, and she's got to figure out how to mitigate that problem as much as possible. So that's all I've got on the impeachment front this week. After the break, when we come back, we're going to cover Mayor Pete Buttigieg and his moment in Iowa, and we're going to talk about the how he's trying to gain black support in South Carolina. And we're back, talking about Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, the South Bend mayor from Indiana, and the fake black support that he's pitching to followers now. So this is the time for Pete Buttigieg. This is his time in the spotlight. This is his limelight. You're seeing we've seen Kamala Harris fade. We've seen Elizabeth Warren fade. We've seen Joe Biden's numbers not really fade on the national level, but in Iowa they've gone up and down and right now Biden's in fourth place in a lot of these polls, even though they're all basically within the margin of error. He's still coming up on the short side of the stick when it comes to leading in Iowa, and now we have two polls out of Iowa that show Pete Buttigieg at around 22% and in first place. So all the positive coverage that he was getting while Elizabeth Warren was getting hammered over her Medicare for All plan is finally paying off, and he's seeing that pay off in Iowa. Now we have to you have to remember here, we've seen all these people rise and fall. So if this truly if he truly is going to win Iowa, he's gonna to have to hold out and win not just now, he's gonna win in next month and all through the month of January leading into the Iowa caucuses at the beginning of February. And from what we've seen out of this field, that is a long, long, long time. And none of them have shown the capacity, aside from Biden. Of staying near at or near the top and leading the field. Bernie Sanders is usually a second to fourth place person, depending on who you're polling and who what makes up the polls. So he's there, he's in and around 15%, which is gonna be enough to grab delegates, which is important to remember. He's gonna have delegates heading into the Democratic Convention. But right now, the field is tilting towards Pete, Mayor Pete, and his coalition of voters and what we know about his coalition of voters is that they're white. They are very very white because of all the contestants and all the people running for office in the democratic field, the person who has probably the highest problem among black voters is Mayor Pete and it's not without reason when you start looking at what the reason he struggles and it's not just because he's white. There's a reason why he's struggling. And two, you look at from where he first started struggling and how it's built out from there. So to understand him, you have to go back to his time as mayor in South Bend and look at how he handled various things there. And the black community in South Bend, Indiana, has been has just been blasting him and criticizing him for years. And the first thing he did was just he was about two or three months in office. And he fired the city's first black police chief. And the police force for South Bend, from what I've read, is about 90% white. And he fired the first black police chief there. Now, he said that he had his reasons, but this started him off on the wrong foot with everybody in that city. The second major thing that you you find when you start reading into his history there, is that he did a 1,000 houses in 1,000 days campaign. And the goal of this was to bulldoze abandoned and vacant houses that were in the city and to knock down 1,000 of them and then use that land for development purposes. The problem was is that the people who were owning, who had rights to these this land and these houses were overwhelmingly black and Hispanic. So again, he was targeting these groups and pushing them out for development purposes. And then finally, what happened over the summer was there was a police officer involved shooting of a man named Eric Logan. Now, police say that when they were called to the scene and they were called to investigate this area that there was a person there they said that Eric Logan came at them with a knife. The officer involved said that Logan came out of a door and was approaching him with a knife raised. The police officer had a body camera. That body cam was never turned on, and it was turned off for that time. So we don't actually know what happened during this event, and Mayor Pete and his guys there have not given an explanation. ...for anything that's happened here. so you had, And this is, these are just some of the highlights of his time as a mayor. So now he's running for a higher office and he's having to go to places like South Carolina... ...and meet with black leaders, black community, and you don't have to deal with that in Iowa. Iowa's overwhelmingly a white state and so is New Hampshire. But you start getting into South Carolina Nevada where there's black and Hispanic populations, and these questions come up, and they are at the forefront of everybody's mind there. And so he's having to contend with this. Now, with Elizabeth Warren, she had her whole, you know, moment on on The Breakfast Club, where she, she was basically called the Rachel Dozell of the people in that field, which is fair because she claimed that she was a Native American. So that criticism from the black community of her made a lot of sense. She did not, however, have to face what Mayor Pete is facing here and all the accusations that he has. So where you could look and say, well, Elizabeth Warren could eventually overcome this if she just wins Iowa and shows that she's a strong candidate, people will start coming along and joining her. Whereas that's Probably true of her, although I don't think it's true at all in a general election. I don't think that's true at all for Pete Buttigieg. He has not shown the capacity to overcome this, and we know this because of his latest stunt. So he, what he's done is he's gone into South Carolina and he announced that he had a Douglas plan, named after Frederick Douglass, and this plan was to address racial inequalities and was. His show of support for the black community in South Carolina, in a bid to bridge that gap, and to show that he had supporters there, so he put together a list of more than 400 people who endorsed this plan, endorsed the Douglas plan, and then he blasted that out in an email blast, in an email thing, and was going to hold an event celebrating this plan with people there to show that he had connections and was connecting with the black community in South Carolina. Here's just one problem with that. Half the people who were listed on that list of 400 people were white. They weren't black at all. And then once you, once you separate those out, the people who were remaining who actually were black, most of them didn't endorse him or his plan at all. In fact, one of them, Ivory Thigpen, I pulled his name because he, he had the most unbelievable thing, He is a state representative in South Carolina, and not only did he not endorse Pete Buttigieg's plan, he is a co-chair for the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign in South Carolina, and he's been working with the Sanders campaign and trying to build a grassroots movement for them there, and Mayor Pete's campaign listed Representative Thickpin as an endorser of Mayor Pete and his campaign. So that's what we've got here. We've got white people on this list we've got him claiming people who are on other campaigns are on his side and the other thing that he did just just to throw even more into this is he sent out an email blast telling people that unless they opted out of the endorsement request that he had they were they were in full fact endorsing so if you didn't affirmatively go to the campaign and email them back and say, no, I do not endorse this. And if you just deleted it, like everybody else, I'm sure they did, because that's what I do with all these campaign emails. If you just deleted it or ignored it, the Mayor Pete's campaign looked at you and said, okay, well, you endorse us, and we're going to list you and blast your name out and use your name as our endorsement in South Carolina. So that's the latest rage with his campaign. So not only does he have this history in South Bend, where the black community there had a lot of reasons for not trusting him, as he's going out and hitting these other states. You know, this is a guy who everybody said oh, this is a brilliant communicator. He's a brilliant politician. He has all the skills, but when he's when, but when he's coming up short here, he's kind of doing the exact same thing that we've seen from Elizabeth Warren and trying to pad his stats. With things that aren't there, I mean at least with Bernie Sanders, when he he knows that he has this problem, he's gone and talked to people like Al Sharpton. he'll sit down and talk on these podcasts he's He's been on these places to talk to people. He at least makes an attempt to reach out and talk but you do not see this level of just underhandedness that you're seeing from the Elizabeth Warrens and Pete Buttigieg's here, where they're just flat-out lying about their support and in a bid to try to make themselves more relevant. So black voters should have this distrust when it comes to him. I mean, it's just, there's nothing else to say because he hasn't, he hasn't been there, he hasn't proven that he's been there, and he just, he's using, he know, you. You know if Pete Buttigieg is there and he's just using you as a prop. And if he's willing to do this with the black community, he's probably doing it with others as well. He's not even trying. And so this is why when you see things like this, I wrote a few weeks ago about how it seemed like Democrats were rejecting the Obama coalition overall and rejecting this idea of moving forward with young voters and minority communities and using that to spin them up into a unique community that elected on the presidential level. And they're not doing that at all. Warren and Buttigieg are a complete rejection of that idea because they do not appeal at all with a single group in the Democratic Party that has any color in them at all. There are no racial groups that show support for these two candidates. And so if they are the ones that the party is going to choose moving forward, which kind of seems unlikely at this page, but it's not out of the question. If they're doing that, they are explicitly going out and just basically trying to get elected, drumming up votes from white people in cities and in suburbs, which is kind of a different place when you look at what the winning coalition was for Democrats during the Obama years. So there's a potential that if they're focusing in on this, they're rejecting that coalition. So Mayor Pete does nothing whatsoever to calm any fears that he is electable in a general election. If he can't pull in black voters, because that costs Hillary Clinton, if he performs even worse than Clinton did, then you can pretty much potential in Donald Trump. Because right now, the only path forward... Democrats have is to energize black voters across the United States and get them out to vote in these states that help push the Electoral College into Democrats' favor. So there's not the reason that you're seeing all these new Democrats jump in the field, the Mike Bloombergs, the the Deval Patrick's, and everyone else. The reason you're seeing this field still grow, even though we've lost a few like Beto, is because they have no confidence And the top tier, aside from maybe Joe Biden, and he's got his own unique problems, to reach out to any minority communities in the Democratic coalition, and that's worrying these Democratic strategists greatly. So that's all I got on that. When we come back, we'll talk real quick about Hong Kong and Iran, and then get you on your way. And we're back. I want to talk real quick about Iran and Hong Kong, and because these are two countries that I think you should watch, especially over the next week, because both of them are powder kegs waiting to go off. First off, in Iran, they have shut down the internet, and they had it down over the weekend In order to prevent protesters from communicating with each other, and there was a debate among the United States intelligence community of whether or not the U.S. needed to step in and try to help uh, protesters get the Internet back up and running so that they could have freedom to um, talk with each other and keep these protests going. So that's kind of where they are. There's this deep level of mistrust in the Iranian government and there's these protests that are going on. We've seen these flash up and down over time and various things have been able to tap in down and right now we're in the moment where they're flashing up again. And it's not obvious that the United States should help here. For one, if you have the internet up, sometimes it's easier for the government to track people if they're on that internet service. So it may not be an obvious help for the protesters on that angle to actually have the United States help out. And the second thing, the reason that it's not obvious that the United States should step in and help here, is because that if we did, that would allow the Iranian government to claim that these protests are really just a U.S. coup in place, trying to overthrow a, a valid government in Iran. And so, you don't want to give these protesters the veneer of being funded by a CIA or anybody else because that would only hurt their cause and with the public, with the public at large. So, you have to be very careful if you're the United States in balancing these interests because we want these protesters to win, but we don't want to also be the reason they either get killed or they're entirely discredited. So, our actions here have to be very careful which is why for the most part we've stuck towards using sanctions because that keeps us out of any military conflicts and we can also basically just try to strangle the Iranian economy and break them that way. We don't want to go to war with Iran, which is why we've kind of ignored a lot of their, their attacks that they've made on us and our allies in the region, but we do want to keep a watchful eye there in order to in order to keep them in check and in place and contained where they are. We don't want them getting out and funding their terror groups out in places like Israel and elsewhere. We want them contained. If Iran fell and their current regime fell, that would be huge. They've tried to go to war with us in order to prevent this fall from happening. And so what we need to do is to continue to try to suffocate them through these sanctions, ignoring the jabs they're throwing, keep strengthening these sanctions and keep using them because they're they're working. It's causing more of these protests to pop up and that will eventually help us ensure the overthrow of the evil regime in Iran. So that's what you need to be watching this week. Watch how protesters and the videos coming out there, watch how they are interacting and trying to get access to the Internet, whether or not they do at all, and watch for any reports of how the United States is helping them moving forward. The second region is Hong Kong, so this deals with China, and they are still a powder keg that's waiting to go off. There were reports out of Reuters that showed that police were talking about using live ammunition on these protesters. There was even a video that came out. I never saw it verified, but there was a video that came out that showed two police officers in the crowd that fired two bullets into that crowd with injuries that took place. So this is where China is. They're looking at this. They're talking about using live ammunition There are people there who have been following. One of them is Lyman Stone. He's a Christian and sort of a missionary over there and also does policy work in D.C. And he calls this area a powder keg, and then it's waiting to go up, and it could be the closest that China has been to committing a massacre on the public stage, something we haven't seen in a while. He wouldn't put it past them. I wouldn't either. The protests are are continuing. There's videos of uh, basically a full-on siege between police, armed police, and students who have holed up in this university. The the, uh, students have used Molotov cocktails to explode and basically burn the front of the university to keep police at bay. And there's talk that the police are using actual lethal force in order to stop the students from doing that. So there are signs that China is beginning to crack here. And if they do... They could do something very bad. They could go in and wipe out a lot of these people. And we know that they're not above it. The New York Times had a report uh, this week talking about some papers that were released about China that just talked about the concentration camps that they have. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of people in these camps in China. And they're there because either of their race or their religion... And they're just being piled up in these camps and abused and tortured. And it's some of the very worst stuff that you will see, If even if you went back and you studied the very worst of Nazi Germany or any of the worst communist government things that were done of the USSR. They had gulags. China is on that level, and they're doing it with 21st century technology, so they're even worse. So Hong Kong is sitting on a powder keg where none of these protesters wants to be. In that system, and no one can really blame them. So that could also be a flashpoint this next week. So you have Iran and Hong Kong. They're both volatile situations that could get work could get worse, I should say. And they both could require U.S. input at some point where we have to step in and do something, either on a sanctions level, the U.N. level. Uh, there, if, if Iran decided to attack israel for any reason we would have to help with that militarily so there's all sorts of things playing out here all sorts of things that could impact everyone involved and so it's best to keep an eye on these regions because you don't want to be caught unaware of what's happening in these specific areas of the world so that's all i've got for today's show On that note, questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the cognitive information in the show notes, or feel free to hit me up on Twitter, at dvonci. Look for my next columns to come out on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to go to the sign-up link for that in the show notes before it goes out on Friday, and you'll get everything that I wrote for that week. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews. They really help out a lot, and I appreciate all of you who've done so, and I appreciate the new, reviewer, uh, the new listeners who are sending in those reviews too. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.